Okay, it's at this time that we'll dismiss our kindergarten through third grade kids to Praiseville. If y'all want to walk to the back, Mr. Orlando is back there. He'll walk you down to the children's wing. And like I said, parents, you'll pick the kids up at the end of the service in the children's wing. If you can just wait on the uh, other side of the counter for the kids to be brought to you, that would be a great help for us. Let me also just, uh, just briefly, as we continue to look and, and reevaluate where we are with, uh, with everything that pertains to COVID, and as we see uh, attendance numbers on Sunday morning pick up gradually or, uh, or have an, an uptick, of course, one of the things that we're uh, eager for and desirous of is uh, for, our, uh, for all of our members to, uh, to be back and not be hindered in their attendance, but we understand that's going to be a process. <laughs> that's all right. We understand that's going to be a process. And as that happens, uh, there'll be a, a slow but steady need for uh, assistance and volunteers again in the, in the children's wing during the worship service for our nursery. So especially if you had been on our nursery rotation before, if you could let Beth uh, Garcia know that you're available to help out again so that the, uh, the small group that we've got right now isn't... Um, isn't overworked in, um, in a way that we can prevent. And then also, if you haven't been on a nursery rotation before, what a great opportunity for you to sign up and to volunteer to serve even the least of these. Does that guilt anyone into? All right, just, just kidding. Jesus said, let the little children come, right? They can come, I'm just going to run the other way. No, that's not how it works. Okay, open up to Genesis chapter 12. Actually, we're going to start at the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12. Let me just set the stage for where we are in the Genesis story at this point. We'll read the passage that we have for this morning, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll walk through it. Uh, remember last week we spent our time in Genesis 10 and 11 looking at the, uh, the origin or the spread of nations in the earth. We had that account in chapter 10. All of these nations and tribes and people groups and language ultimately traced themselves back to one of Noah's three sons. And one of the refrains in chapter 10 was that these are the people, according to their tribes and nations, according to their language. So there is the blessing of God on the human race to be fruitful and multiply, as it was from the very beginning. God is, has not gone back on his intention to bless. But there's, uh, there's a new realization in chapter 10 that something is different than the way that it used to be, whereas there used to be in the early chapters of Genesis almost a sense that all of humanity is one large family. Now there appear to be different families that are developing, and we don't know why until we get to chapter 11, and we find that the reason that there are different languages and people groups and nations is because as a response to human pride and a desire to be independent from God's rule and command, God confused the languages of people, gave, created different languages so that they would scatter abroad to fill the earth rather than trying to gather together in an attempt to invade or intrude upon God's domain and God's rule. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 11 or midway through chapter 11, the picture then is on the one hand of a creator, a God, a king who rules over his creation with the steady intention of blessing all that he has made, especially his image bearers. But as a result of the events that happened at the Tower of Babel, by the time we end that account, we have a picture of humanity that is scattered and separated and in many ways sort of estranged from themselves, which is not a picture 
of blessing and harmony and unity. So what happens then at the end of chapter 11, and particularly in terms, and, and particularly when we move into chapter 12, chapter 12 is in some respects almost the pivotal passage of all of Genesis. The first 11 chapters or so are almost like an extended prologue coming after the creation account. To say, this is what God is going to do to see to it that in the end, all the peoples of the earth are blessed. Here's how blessing is going to be given to all of these competing, contrasting, disparate people groups and nations. It's going to happen as God works through one man. So pick up with me down late in chapter 11 at verse 27. In 11.10, we focus on the, the line of Shem and how it prospers and develops. But all of that ultimately is to bring us to this individual Abram, who we know more from, uh, in a more familiar way as Abraham. Now, these are the records, 11.27, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law his son Abraham, uh, Abram's wife and they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. 12.1 Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to see clearly now in the words that you have given to us in your written scriptures the promise of life, the promise of blessing that comes through one man. Help us to see especially that the promise of blessing that comes through one man ultimately is not Abraham but is Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. Allow us to see not only the value and the reward that lie in your promises, but also the need for a response of faith and obedience to what you have revealed. We pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. I'm going to pick up for our purposes at chapter 12. And I'm going to look at 12, 1 through 9 by breaking it up into two parts. I'm going to take one through three as a way to look at the promise or the promises that God gives to Abram. And then in verses four through nine, 
the response to the promises or faith's response to the promises of God. So in 12, 1 through 3, there's some things that you want to take note of. Abram is from the land of Ur, Mesopotamia, sort of in the region of where Iraq is today. And he is called out of his homeland to travel a long way to get into the land of Canaan. And all of this movement happens in chapter 12. It's initiated, it started by the word of God that's given to Abraham in 12, 1 through 3. The word of God given to Abraham in the form of promises. So before we ever get to looking at Abraham and trying to find some sort of identification or similarity between Abraham and us and uh, practical application, one of the things that we want to recognize right off the bat is that if God's intention and if His purpose and plan is to bring blessing to humanity, to all the nations of the earth, to all the peoples of the earth in a settled, definitive way, you have to take note of the fact that the way that plan is set into motion, the way that plan will be executed is through the Word of God. Abraham picks up from where he is, he leaves everything behind, and he goes because the Lord said to Abram. Abram, Abraham, can I just say Abraham because we're more familiar with that rather than trying to, okay, I'm going to say Abraham. Abraham will give his life in response to the Word of God, which comes to him in chapter 12 in the form of a promise. That is a paradigm for what God does throughout Scripture when He calls His people to Himself. He calls people out of their former life. He calls people out of their comfort zones and their affluence and their preconceived ideas about what life ought to be or what I want to achieve in life, He calls them out of that to Himself by His Word. All that God does in Genesis up to this point, all of the pivotal moments and movements in Genesis has all originated with God speaking. In Genesis 1, When there is nothing but God who exists, something comes out of nothing because the Lord said, let there be. Adam and Eve are given a call, given a purpose in life because the Lord spoke to them and blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. God's protection and security is given in the form of promise and reward. You may eat from any tree, but don't eat from this one or you will certainly die. His intention to save the human race through the one man of Noah and his family is communicated by a word that's given to Noah about imminent judgment, and then coming off of the imminent judge, or coming off of the judgment as it's poured out, when Noah and his family come off of the boat, what does God do? God speaks to Noah and his sons and says, be fruitful and multiply, and he enters into a covenant with Noah in order to guarantee the stability of this created order. Do you see? Everything that God does in Genesis, he does, particularly as it pertains to his creatures, his image bearers, he does primarily through his word. And he does that here with Abraham. Listen, one of the reasons that that is important is because it is a necessary reminder to us that what God wants us to know, he will tell us. What we don't need to know, he won't tell us. 
This is not Abraham looking around at the world, at society, at culture, and Abraham saying, you know what, I've got an idea as to how we can fix this. What if I offer myself over to God and I say, God, why don't you bless me so that I can be a vehicle of blessing to other people? That's not the way that it works. God's blessing is going to come to all of creation and all of humanity according to God's purpose and God's plan. And the way that we know what that blessing is and what that purpose and plan is, is because God in his kindness speaks a word to Abraham that moves Abraham in response. Notice, though, that in the word that's given to Abraham, there are some things, as we've just intimated, as we've just alluded to, there are some things that Abraham is told, and there are many things that Abraham is not told. For example, Abraham is told to pick up and go. Where? Somewhere. Go to a land that I'm going to show you. How old is Abraham when he enters into Canaan? Seventy-five. You think at seventy-five you're looking to make a brand new start in life? You think at seventy-five you're looking to cash in your stocks and bonds and draw on all your retirement funds, pick up, move out of your house to somewhere? Go to the land that I'm going to show you. And here's what I will do, Abraham. I will bless you. I will make your name great. How are you going to do that, Lord? Don't know. God just said that he's going to do it. How how about, Lord, okay, you're not going to tell me necessarily the mechanics of this, how you're going to give me a great name, how you're going to turn me into a nation. Okay, you you don't need to tell me that. How about you just give me a timeline? How about you tell me, how long do I have to wait for these things to come to pass? Because if I know that all I have to do is hold out for a year or five years, I, I I can suck it up, I can grip my teeth if I know after five years I'm going to be reaping the benefits of these promises. Abraham is given all that he needs to know in order to respond to the word of God. The Lord clearly speaks to Abraham, clearly reveals to him what it is that he intends to do, that Abraham, I am going to bless you so that my blessing will come to all peoples. It is not for you to know all the ins and outs. You don't have to worry your simple little mind about those things. I will do that. Here is the promise. Will you take it? That is uncomfortably similar to what God does with His people even today, is it not? When Christ calls to people in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How are you going to give me rest, Lord? When are you going to give me rest? Can we get it in a lump sum You don't get those details. You don't get a finely worded, detailed contract that the Lord presents to you to say, here is what I have in store for you if you're willing to follow. The Lord just simply says, I promise this. Here are my promised rewards. Do they sound good to you? Do you want those offerings? Do you want those gifts? Do you want me? All right, sign this blank contract. Take my word, give your life in light of the promises of God, not knowing exactly how these promises will come to take shape. Not only do we need to be reminded of the fact that there are many things that God gives us in His promises that are sufficient to move us, 
but are not exhaustive so that we know every single means by which God is going to work. It's also a reminder that we have to guard ourselves from reading into God's promises things that God has never promised. It's dangerous to offer God, it's dangerous to offer God through Christ to people with the guarantee that if you get Christ or if you take the promises of Christ for yourself, you will also get these other things attached to it when God has never promised to offer those other things. When I hear the call of God in the promises of Jesus Christ, I am not guaranteed what my marriage is going to look like as I pursue Christ. I am not told whether my children will walk with the Lord. I'm not told if I will even have children. I am not told what my career will be. I, will not, I am not told how easy my life will be. And it is foolish and dangerous to attach to the promises of God things that God himself has not said. The promise that is given to Abraham is given in a word that can be known, that can be understood, that God in his wisdom gives to Abraham, and the offer is to Abraham to simply take what he has heard, believe that God will do what he has promised to do, and to respond accordingly. Part of what that response means is that Abraham is going to have to radically change his life. He cannot respond to the promise of God without there being a significant life change. Abraham, here are the promises that are being offered to you. I'm offering you nothing less than a relationship with me, than permanent, steadfast blessing, but you can't have it and stay where you are right now. You have to leave. You have to turn your back on comfort. You have to turn your back on home. You have to turn your back on family. You have to turn your back on everything to come to me and to live according to my word and my promises. You think that's a natural offer that people like us are just dying to take? Hey, Jonathan, why don't you give up everything for the sake of a promise that I'll do something for you later? And just in case we're tempted to think that one of the reasons that God calls Abraham is because Abraham is, you know, sort of like Noah. He's just sort of a cut above everyone. Hold your place here. Go to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24 verse 2. This is at the end when Joshua is about to leave the scene after the Israelites have entered into the land and Joshua is giving them some closing motivation, correction, encouragement. Listen to what Joshua says in 24.2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Who's the they that served other gods? Nahor, Haran. Could it be that even Abraham was someone who served other gods before God called him out? At the very least, it seems like Abraham is going to be thoroughly influenced by the culture and the background that he was in at the time that the Lord called him out. In other words, there is nothing about Abraham, first and foremost, 
that would compel God to do this work with Abraham. All of it ultimately goes back to the compelling nature of the promises of God offered to this man. Will you take it? And because these are promises that God gives, the only reason that you would do what Abraham does, that you would leave everything to go somewhere for God's purposes to be accomplished in you sometime, in some way, the only reason you do that, you give up, quote-unquote, stability for the uncertainty of the promises of God is if you're thoroughly convinced that the promises of God actually are far more certain and stable than the so-called stability that you have in this life. See, more often than not, the reason that we don't respond to the promises of God, the reason that we're not willing or eager even to turn our back on this thing or this person or this experience to pursue something that God promises to us is because we're not thoroughly convinced that the promise is secure enough, that God is trustworthy enough to actually give us what He promises to give us if we turn our backs on this stuff over here. Over and over and over again in Scripture, the problem turns out to be not first and foremost the fact that we are too weak in our obedience or too weak in our strength, but that we're too weak in our faith. But if the promises of God come to us, and if, by His grace and mercy, we are thoroughly convinced that the one who promised is faithful, that the one who said, I will do this, will in fact do it, why would we not? Why would we not accept the promises of God and give up everything for the promise of greater reward in the future. Abraham, you can have security now. You can have comfort now. You can be familiar with your surroundings. And you'll die in that familiarity. You'll die in that supposed security, but you'll do it without me, and you'll do it without my blessing. But Abraham, you can leave that security, you can leave that familiarity, and based on what I'm promising you, you can get something far better than this brief snatch of time. You can get eternal rewards and blessings that are going to be given to you and will overflow into other people if you come and if you follow. Me. Let me give you, before we move into Abraham's response at verse 4, let me, let me give you, in case I don't come back to this later, th listen, this is, this is one of the things that is going to continue to run through, not just the, the Abraham narratives, but the, the narratives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then ultimately even with Joseph. The question is always going to be, is God going to be true and faithful to His promises? Can we trust Him? And if in our trust, can we obey Him? Right? Because life is going to compete and try to tell you that the promises are not secure, that God is not trustworthy, that you have to make something of yourself, that you have to secure your own future rather than letting God secure your future through His promised blessing. All right, so listen... One of the reasons that we ought to be confident in the promises of God is because they are the promises of God, and God cannot lie. If God were to lie, He would cease to be God. But here's another reason. Hold your place here. Go to Galatians chapter 3.
You remember when we, when we um, started in Genesis 1, the very first Sunday that we were in Genesis, and we said, what, what was God doing before he started to put all this together? Why would he create? And we said, well, before anything ever was or existed, God was perfectly happy, perfectly at peace, enjoying fellowship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we said, and then you look in the New Testament and you find out that God creates this world through His Son for His Son. All things are created through Him and are for Him, Paul says. This world God creates as a gift to give to His Son, which in a significant way is one of the reasons, if not the ultimate reason, why God is so committed to His creation. He's not committed to this world first and foremost because of you and me. Thank God. He is committed to this world and this creation because He's committed to His Son. This is an inheritance that the Father promised to the Son, and therefore the Father is not going to break the promise that He's made to His Son. He's going to keep this gift waiting for Him until everything is wrapped up. Along those same lines, go to Galatians chapter 3 and look at verse 16. Now, the promises, Paul says, were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Don't miss the mind-blowing statement that Paul makes here in Galatians 3.16. God spoke these promises to Abraham and to his seed. Who is the seed that Abraham or that Paul is referring to? Christ. So you can phrase the beginning of Galatians 3:16 this way. God spoke the promises to Abraham and to Christ. When God promises these blessings to Abraham and through Abraham to all the nations of the earth, the ultimate goal An objective that God has in mind is giving these blessings, these promises to no one less than His very Son. All of the blessings of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All of the blessings that God pronounces to His people find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, which means this. One of the reasons that you can be assured that it is worth building your life on the promises of God is, yes, because God is trustworthy and He cannot lie, but also because the promises that God has made to His people, He has made first and foremost and ultimately to His Son. And the only way that God could not fulfill or make good on any one of His promises that He's given to us is if He were found to be lying to His Son. I have more security in the promises of God that are mine in Christ than I could ever begin to imagine or conceive. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist eternally, infinitely in this blessed union with nothing but joy and delighting in one another. You think the Father making a promise to His Son about being the heir, the ruler of all this creation, of a people for himself? You think the father is not going to make good on that promise to his son? God forbid. And you think then that the promises that are offered to you that are secured because of the promises that are made to the son are not worth building your life on, not secure enough, not steady enough for you to turn your back on trivial things in this life? These things are shadows. It's empty. It's hollow compared to what it is that we have in the promises of God through Jesus Christ. If we were more convinced of that, we would see more of this kind of a response. People who are willing to turn their back on everything. 
to gain Christ. To know the blessing of God in this life that prepares them for the life to come. So the Word of God is given in the form of a promise that He is going to bring His blessing to all humanity. He's going to do that through one man, through Abraham. His promise is clear, it's decisive, it is not exhaustive in the way that Abraham or any of Abraham's descendants may like it to be. He's not given a blow-by-blow account of what kind of shape his life will take. He just knows that this is what God has promised, the offer of life and blessing and a future, and if he takes this free promise, it is his to have, never to lose. What then is Abraham's response? Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had spoken to him. God says, Go. And he goes. That's insanity. That is insane, people. That is certifiable. This kind of action is not something that you can explain to someone who does not also share in the promises of God. It makes no sense. What do you, what do you do? What are you thinking if you're Abraham's or yeah, if you're Abraham's neighbor at the time that he picks up and starts to move? What do you think a conversation like that sounded like? Oh, Abraham, I hear you're moving. Yeah, that's right. Where are you going? I don't know. Well, Abraham, you, you're, you're settled here, right? You're, I mean, 75. I mean, you're, you're still pretty vigorous for your age, but, you know, probably just this is, these are the sunset years. You want to be on the beach collecting seashells and... You want to be spending time with grandkids. Oh, well, forget the grandkids part. You want to be spending time with family and friends, right? Not just sort of wandering aimlessly about. Well, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do. But why, why are you doing that, Abraham? You, well, God told me to do it. Uh-huh. Okay, Abraham, well, it was good talking to you. Good luck with all that. Right? Responding to the promise of God in the way that Abraham does here is foolishness in the eyes of the world. One of the things that we might consider asking ourselves is if our lives don't look foolish to the world around us, Is it possible that we're not living in light of the promises of God the way that we ought to? We want to be able to keep the promises of God, but we also want to be able to keep the security and the comfort that this life has to offer. But the minute that you begin to sell everything to invest in the promises that God has made, you will look ridiculous to the world. In the eyes of the world, giving up everything for the promise of future glory is a foolish investment. But Abraham picks up and leaves. And as he goes down, he's got Sarah, his wife, with him. He's got Lot with him. He takes everything that he's accumulated. They move through the land. They come into Canaan. Look at verse 6. Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Why, why is there the little throwaway line about the Canaanites being in the land? You understand what's happening here? We fast forward to Abraham entering into the land, 
And the Lord says, okay, this is it, Abraham. Now, here's, here's where you are. You followed in faith. Here's the land. This is the land that I'm going to give to your descendants. And Abraham looks around, and it doesn't look like real estate that anyone is looking to sell at the moment. There are occupants in the land that supposedly belongs to Abraham and his non-existent descendants. Here you go, Abraham. So what do you do if you're Abraham and you've just made this trek across the wilderness... You've left everything because of the call of God, because of the promise of future blessing, and you come to this place that God says He's going to give you, and in fact, it looks like what God says He's going to give to you is already owned and in full possession of somebody else. What do you do? What does Abraham do? The man builds an altar, and he worships. You think Abraham worships because when he looks around, he says, oh yeah, this really does look like my land. Or do you think that Abraham worships in spite of what his eyes tell him is true? This is part of what it means to live by faith, people. It means living on the promises of God, not by what the eyes see, but by what the ears hear. It means God making a promise that He will bless His people in this way, that He will bless you in that way, and you saying, I don't see that blessing right now the way that I would like to see it. Nevertheless, I will worship the God who has promised it to me. I will worship in anticipation of the blessing that is to come. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Do you hear what is being said there? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and in fact, as you go through Hebrews 11 and all of Scripture, all of living by faith means this one simple thing, that you are living your life on the reality of God's Word, even when the reality of God's Word comes into conflict with the reality of this life. Abraham is going to live the rest of his days in this land, and it will look no more like his land when he dies than when he first enters into it. Listen, Christian, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot gauge the faithfulness of God, the security and stability of God's Word and His promises to us based on what your eyes see on any given day. At the very least, right, 
we can look at ourselves and we can say, God says in his word that these people here are saints. Is that what my eyes tell me? When I look out, do I see saints? Angelic glows over every head seated in the pew? Is that what you see when you look up here? Is that what you see when you look at your neighbor in the pew next to you? God's Word says that He is already in the process of sanctifying and glorifying us. Is that what it looks like to the natural eye? No, it doesn't. But is that or is it not what God is in fact doing in spite of what our eyes cannot see? Don't walk, don't live based on what the eyes see. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. All of these Hebrews tell us, referring to the patriarchs, all of these men and women died in their faith. Not receiving what God had promised to them in this life. Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to live by faith in the promises of God, saying, whether I see those promises in this life or not, I'm living in light of the promise because I know that God is going to reward. The last thing that we want to point out, Abraham goes into a land that is promised to him, promised to his descendants, it does not look like a land that he owns. It will never look like his land. It will always look like somebody else's property. But this is what God has promised. And so Abraham builds his life, centers his life on that promise. Don't also miss the simple but profound realization that for people who have that kind of settled confidence in the Word of God, in the promises of God, one of the things that will mark out their life is worship. What you will not find in the life of Abraham is Abraham feeling as if he has to compete with these squatters on his land. He doesn't have to cheat them out of their property. He doesn't have to work his way onto the city council. He doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to do that. God has said, this land is mine. It will be mine. Therefore, let me worship God for the kindness that he has shown me and will show me in the future. And he builds an altar and he worships. Everywhere that Abraham goes and everywhere that his people go, God intends for them to be recognized not as people who are competing over the scraps of this world, but who are patiently, humbly waiting for the riches of reward that is going to be given to them that they do not have to fight and scratch and claw over. I want my life, I want my family, I want this church family to be characterized by a growing confidence in the Word of God that says no matter what it is that we're experiencing, no matter what the circumstances are in the world around us, although every man is a liar, God is true. And if that means I have to turn my back on everything in order to get everything in Christ, it's an offer I can't refuse. Let's pray. Father, make us people of faith. Give us a growing steadfast confidence in the authority of your word 
that the promises of God are secure because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that the blessings that we are experiencing now are just a foretaste of further, greater, eternal blessings that are ours to be received in the future, and that this present life pales in comparison to what it is that you will freely give to your sons and daughters. Father, let that change the way that we live in just the day-to-day ebb and flow of this busy world. Help us to keep things in perspective. Help us to recognize that we don't have to reach and grasp that all of this we stand to inherit with your Son, Jesus Christ, and that it will in no way be taken away from us because you are faithful and true. Thank you, ultimately, that the promises of eternal blessing come not ultimately through an Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, but come through Jesus Christ himself. And for that reason, we can be confident that no one will undo what you have purposed and planned. We praise you and we thank you for the goodness of your word, for revealing your promises to us through the work of Christ and by giving us your Holy Spirit so that we would joyfully pursue those rewards in faith with great hope. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us respond to that uh, wonderful message of truth that no matter what circumstance we are in, he is worthy. Amen. Let's continue to praise him as we end this service. Would you stand with us? Worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of honor and glory, worthy of all the glad songs we can sing, worthy of all of the offerings we bring, you are worthy, Father, Creator, you are worthy.